The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, There was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hethek, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was, and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king, to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's holy and inspired word. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your greatness and your power 
and your faithfulness to your people throughout all the ages. Pray that you would strengthen us tonight as we consider this portion of your word. Give us your wisdom and your insight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people in Western culture enjoy a good story, the triumph of good over evil, and especially when help mysteriously comes from some unknown or unlikely source. We love the unsung hero. We think of Frodo of the Lord of the Rings, the most unlikely of heroes, reluctant to take the role of the ring bearer, and yet pressed by necessity to take this most dangerous weapon of the evil Lord Sauron deep into the heart of Mordor to cast it into the fiery depths of Mount Doom. And repeatedly in that great epic, when all hope is lost, when the heroes are overwhelmed and engulfed by orcs or werewolves or some other evil creature, superior assistance comes to their aid to overthrow the evil hordes. Such stories run through American and British blood deep. We are a nation who comes to the aid of others. In the past century, coming to assist Europe in the stalemate and holocaust of two world wars. I would point out that in both cases, America felt itself ill-prepared, ill-equipped, and having to labor mightily in an effort to catch up, to do what was necessary to secure victory. Well, the peace-loving agrarian hobbit Frodo was ill-prepared for the role of ring bearer. He was not a warrior. And yet, crisis required action. And so he volunteered to do what no one else could do. Well, in a similar fashion, Esther is rather ill-prepared to act. And yet, she is unique in a position where no one else can fulfill her role. Imagine her whole life had been trained under the leadership and mentorship of her adoptive father, Mordecai. Her whole life trained for accommodation, for assimilation to the Persian Empire. She had hidden her Jewish identity her whole life, offering little resistance to the encroachment of impurity and idolatry from the pagans. Just going along with the flow and finding herself rising to prominence as queen of the empire. And then crisis struck. With unparalleled proportions, action was necessary. In the words of Winston Churchill, it is not enough that we do our best. Sometimes we must do what is required. Esther rises to the task. At the risk of her own life, with very little assurance from a king who is known to be vindictive and arbitrary, and yet underlying the entire narrative is a greater appeal to the true king, who guides the hands and guides the heart and the thoughts of earthly magistrates. I believe three themes emerge from this passage. The themes of identification, intervention, and intercession. 
After his long career of assimilation and concealment, Mordecai is finally forced by this crisis to identify publicly with his people. And this crisis is such that it compels him to impress upon Esther the necessity of intervention. Then Esther, in turn, calls upon Mordecai and the surrounding community to lift her up with intercession. You recall last time how in chapter 3, Mordecai took a stand of sorts, refusing to pay homage to Haman the Agagite. And Pastor Light had pointed out to us that it was not necessarily wrong for him to show honor and respect to an authoritative official, but it was a gray area. And here's the reason why. While Hebrew, the Hebrews centuries before under Nebuchadnezzar refused to bow down to idols, it was not necessarily a you know, disobedience to God's law to honor rightful rulers and authorities. And yet Haman is unique. As revealed in our text, a descendant of a sworn enemy of the Israelites. He is an Amalekite. That race of people who attacked Israel when they were coming out of Egypt and traveling to the promised land. And God had pronounced a curse of extermination on the Amalekite people. Something that King Saul failed to carry out. When he spared King Agag, perhaps seeking a ransom payment from his people, for whom Samuel rose up in zeal to cut down this wicked king. And so the theme continues among God's people, just like their exile. So this enemy is even present due to the sin, the unfaithfulness of God's people, a consequence for their lack of obedience to God. And this enemy now rises up as a grave threat to God's people. Well, Mordecai, who had concealed his Hebrew identity, now makes it known by refusing to pay homage to Haman, whose servants investigate, who discover Mordecai's true identity, and proceed to inform Haman of his origins. And Haman is not content to punish Mordecai for this insult not, refuse, not discontent to punish him only, but is determined to exterminate, to cast an empire-wide genocide. Not unlike the diabolical intentions of Adolf Hitler, to completely eliminate the Jews and other undesirables from Europe. When Mordecai, in our passage, learns of the king's decree... He goes public, joining the Jewish people in mourning this tragedy that has befallen them. This man who had enjoyed an official's status, comfortable, living, quietly, serving the empire, he now trades in his robes, his privileges, his position by grieving publicly in sackcloth at the king's gate. Now he is forbidden entry into the palace in his sackcloth, like Disney World. It's a place where only happiness is allowed. Drawing additional attention to himself, Mordecai cries out with a loud 
and bitter cry of lament. Now, perhaps a lesser man would be tempted to continue his concealment. Perhaps he could use his network, his connections to plot his own escape, to remain hidden during the time of crisis. And yet Haman's vindictiveness remains upon Mordecai, who is a marked man. There are other figures in Old Testament history who revealed their identity. We think of Jonah, who made known his true identity to the sailors, who could do him harm in retribution for the storm that was sent upon the Mediterranean that day. Too much to his surprise, the sailors tried to spare his life, but then must concede by casting Jonah overboard into the sea. And there Jonah sunk with his identity. And yet God raised him up for a very important mission to a pagan people and a message to Jonah and his people. We think of Joseph who concealed his identity for a time in Egypt until he rose to a place of prominence and there testing his brothers to discern their fidelity and loyalty. And when Judah passes the test, showing faithfulness to Benjamin and to their father, when Joseph can conceal his identity no longer, he makes it known. With a loud cry of wailing and lament, drawing attention to himself from his Egyptians, unafraid to reveal who he was and where he was from. We think of Moses, who identified himself with his people. And in doing so, struck down an Egyptian soldier that sent him off as a fugitive for 40 years. Mordecai, Joseph, Jonah, Moses, and others identified with their own people at the cost of hostility and a threat from their enemies. And yet, none of these examples comes close to the one who gave up everything to identify with his people. This one laid aside his crown of glory, who cast aside his robes, who put off the worship of angels, who traded away the security and comfort of heavenly glory and the intimacy and counsel of his father, to bear sackcloth, to take up a peasant's life, to bear the ashes of enemy and hostility, to endure the lashes of the Roman scourge, in the bitterness of the cross, and who cried out with a loud voice. This one who bore the sins of many, identified with his people. While Mordecai's change, identifying with his own people is commendable, it is the identification of Jesus with us that has the power to change us. As, we, as would-be followers of Christ... It's at the, at the foot of the cross that we learn to put away all reserve. To lay aside our pretense to learn to boldly declare our identity as a child of the king. You and I are tempted in the workplace, amongst our families, with our co-workers and friends. We are tempted to keep our identity quiet. To not declare too loudly who we are. Perhaps in some circles, it's tolerable to be a Christian in generic terms. 
but say the name of evangelical. Carry a Bible with you. Be caught praying, and you may risk scorn, disdain. You may be looked down upon. You may be mocked in places in our community. Our young people in the halls of learning are intimidated to reveal their true Christian identity and commitment. And increasingly in a culture that is post-Christian, we must ask ourselves, whose side are we on? We need to remember the warning of Jesus, that he who is ashamed of me at my coming, I will be ashamed of him. There have been times in my past when I was, had been reluctant to reveal my identity as a pastor, having learned by experience that it introduces an awkwardness to the conversation. It's a conversation stopper with some people. And yet, in recent years, I've learned to embrace it. I've learned to completely reveal up front my Christian identity and my role as a pastor, knowing that it will drive some away, but trusting God to determine who I'll be in relationship with, trusting God's leading and guidance as to who I'm called to pastor and to pray for, to encourage, to minister to, to find out in whom the Spirit may be working, whom I may be of some assistance to the Lord in his work. We must learn to embrace our identity, to leave our fears of rejection at the foot of the cross, and to go to those whom the Lord may use us to bear witness to the truth and the light. Well, when Esther learns of Mordecai's mourning and situation in sackcloth, she seeks to intervene, offering him clothing to clothe himself properly. She, deep within the ivory tower, is concealed and ignorant of the decree that poses a great plight to her people. Well, Mordecai has an intervention plan of his own. Now that he has the queen's attention by using the servants as intermediaries, he refuses the garments and using what clout he has to command her to go to the king, to beg his favor, to plead on behalf of her people. Now, commentators point out to us that the language Mordecai uses in instructing Esther is language that we use to appeal to God, to beg of his favor, to plead with him. And so it might be said that Mordecai has misplaced priorities, or Mordecai is not thinking high enough. Mordecai is not making his appeal to the true king, but rather focusing his energies on this mere puppet king who presumes to be ruler of Persia. Perhaps his years of compromise have dulled his passion and zeal and faith in the Lord Almighty. We will see. Well, Esther, in response, offers a very matter-of-fact rebuttal, pointing out to her adoptive father how his request is complicated. She points out that the law forbids anyone from entering the inner court uninvited upon penalty of death. 
The only exception is when the king chooses mercy and extends to the one who interrupts him, the golden scepter. This is not exactly an open-door policy, but a tight restriction upon pain of death. And to add to this dilemma, Esther points out that she has not been called to the king in 30 days, and no telling when he will call her again. Well, undeterred, Mordecai makes a second appeal to his daughter and stirs up her own self-interest to intervene on behalf of the people, pointing out first that he, he is a marked man, but declares to her that she is no more likely to escape than any of the other Jews or any of her own father's household. And I believe in his language to her by suggesting that by remaining silent, Esther would be committing betrayal to her own people and would be under God's judgment. And yet even in his appeal, Mordecai expresses a great confidence that relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. His use of the passive voice, and without an explicit reference to Almighty God, some have indicated this is a sign of practical atheism. Though theologically orthodox, Mordecai fails to connect his beliefs with everyday practice and daily life, even in the midst of a crisis. I'd like us to consider how we are not much different, that we profess a robust faith in the living God, that we profess faith in Christ. We oftentimes struggle to make the connection with daily life. Think of some of the pious platitudes that perhaps we have used or heard other Christians using when someone dies and blandly saying, well, the person is in a better place. Or when a trial or a difficulty strikes somebody, we try to comfort them with words like, well, there's a reason for everything. Or perhaps in the affirmation of someone's good report from a medical condition, we we praise the medical science of, wow, it's so amazing what they can do these days. Think of the language we use that does not do justice, that does not give proper honor and praise to God Almighty, the one who offers true hope, the one who offers true consolation in death, the one who truly is sovereign and is deeply involved in all of our trials and difficulties, the one alone who can heal us and restore our favor. One final challenge to Esther. We find Mordecai offering these words when he suggests that she has has been appointed to this position as queen of the empire and has risen to this place for such a time as this pointing out the golden opportunity that she might have to be an agent to deliver the Jews from certain destruction. And this is as close as the text ever gets of of any mention of God, but clearly it's pointing out to us a purpose, that there is meaning, that there is direction, that that God ultimately is orchestrating events to bring about a great deliverance.
we think of the history of God's people. How God used Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. How God raised up David to lead his people to conquer the Palestinians and other foes. How God sent the Lord Jesus for such a time as this. The perfect time in all of history. With a Greco-Roman world focused and connected by language and currency and travel for the gospel to spread through the apostles and their disciples. God raises up deliverance for such a time as this in all ages. Not just in the past, but in the present as well. I'd like us to consider what it is that Mordecai is truly asking of Esther. I point out to you again how this young woman has been trained to placate, to accommodate, to assimilate within the Persian Empire. Now she's asked to stand up to it. Her Jewishness has been concealed her whole, her whole life. She is a woman of compromise, perhaps driven by a desire for survival or to capitalize on the winners of culture to rise with them to the top. Esther has not been trained to go against the flow. She has lacked models of those who stand firm in their convictions. She is not a Daniel. She is not a Shadrach, Meshach, or an Abednego who boldly rejected idolatry and zealously preserved the purity of their Jewish identity. I would liken Esther to modern-day Christian teenagers who, whose parents may profess faith in Christ, who may go to church on a somewhat regular basis, but who functionally do not live any differently from the rest of the culture, driven by consumer consumption goals, only concerned about a good education and material gain, without any greater vision or mission in life. Several years ago, I was in Barnes & Noble bookstore, and I saw the cover of a book that startled me. It was entitled, Pride and Prejudice with Zombies. And for years now, I've noticed this bizarre cultural phenomenon, this fascination with zombies. It's in video games, it's in movies, there's even a blockbuster movie out right now called World War Z. And I've wondered to myself, what in the world is going on with a fascination with zombies? Well, I would venture my own interpretation that it's our culture's observation of mindless consumption, of being trapped of being warped and twisted, being driven by insatiable desire. And I believe that accurately captures the spirit of our age, of people walking around mindlessly like zombies, consuming and driven with an insatiable desire for more. Many people feel zombie-like lacking meaning and purpose without any higher goals or dignity, lacking the fulfillment and drive of the glory of God. Perhaps we could write a book, The Book of Esther and Zombies. 
to offer encouragement and hope to those seeking meaning and purpose in a meaningless age. Esther is like a young person ill-equipped to share her faith. Intimidated by her classmates, her co-workers, fear of rejection in awkward situations. And Mordecai is turning from a, a, a posture of concealment to one of public identification. Like parents who are half-hearted about their Christian faith suddenly grow convicted and fearful and try to fan it into flame, stirring it up to be zealous and then expecting their children to go along with them. And such kids who have only known compromise their whole lives may be slow to follow along so quickly, asking, well, what is truly at stake here? Young Christian children are sent off to college expected to preserve their purity as they're sent into a cultural, a soup of pagan revelry. I think parents and church leaders need a little more humility. We need to identify and rid ourselves of hypocrisy. We need to reconsider our expectations, considering the pressures our kids face. We need to do a little better job at helping them and supporting them rather than demanding of them. Learn from the military, which offers training and equipment to prepare its young people for battle. We also need a wartime mentality to prepare and equip our people for the war that's out there, for the war that's going on in here, of how we must be yielded to God's Spirit. You know, what Mordecai asks of Esther is not fair, but it is necessary. It's not right for him to expect such sudden change overnight from a posture of accommodation and self-preservation to bold intervention, and yet the nature of the crisis necessitates it. There's no other way, humanly speaking. Mordecai is right to go to Esther in this situation. There was no one, other, no one else to intervene. There is only one who could enter into the king's inner chamber to appeal for clemency and relief and deliverance for her people. And it's in that manner that Esther prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who could intervene. In Israel, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies one day a year having made all the preparations, fearful of the threat of death if he was ill-prepared to make atonement for God's people. We need a better mediator than a mere human, flawed priest. We need more than Mary and the saints. We go directly to the one true mediator the Lord Jesus, the one who opens up a new and living way, the high priest who has has passed through the heavens on our behalf, the one who came to identify with us because there was a crisis, because it was necessary, because the Father so willed it to bring glory to himself and deliverance for his people from the threat of judgment and wrath to come. Without his intervention, we would have been 
doomed. Christ made a vital intervention at great personal cost for himself and lives to make intercession on our behalf. Well, just as it was right for Mordecai to go to Esther to intervene, it was right of Esther to call upon him and their people to make intercession for her. Now, prayer is not mentioned in the text, but it is strongly implied by the call to fasting. When people fasted, they humbled themselves. They denied themselves. They are regularly reminded of their weakness and dependency upon God. And in this dire situation, they need a dire and bold claim of dependence upon God. So Esther calls for a three-day fast to help prepare her to make her appeal to the king. Now fasting for this woman is counterintuitive. It might diminish her appearance, the best thing that Esther had to offer to her husband. But like her forerunners who refused the fat portions of Babylon, she chose to depend upon God and not her own designs. The whole community responds with fasting and weeping and mourning. Where they had failed to see their need and dependence before, this crisis forces them into a humble posture of dependence, of fasting. And like too many Christians, half-hearted in prayer, awakened by crisis and trial, we must learn our regular, daily, humble need and dependence on God. Don't wait for the next crisis. Learn to humbly depend upon the Lord your God daily to feast and to fast at the throne of grace. Well, Esther cannot only fast. She must also act as well. She must speak. She needs a plan. She needs something to say to the king. And so she calls her intercessors to fast on her behalf and to pray for her that she might gain wisdom, and that she might act at the right time and in the right place. She knows she may only have one shot. In my reading of the book of Esther, I've largely concluded that this bold woman is less the courageous hero that we want her to be, that many throughout the ages have tried to make her out to be, In fact, she is a woman who is caught and stuck between the jaws of the empire and her own identity as one of the people of God. The very situation she is in is a consequence, a consequence of Israel's sin, a consequence of their failure to obey, being cast off into exile. The fact that there's even this evil doer in Haman is a consequence of Saul's failure to obey. The people of God have to act in this situation. It's a crisis of their own making, of their own unfaithfulness, of their own infidelity, of their own harlotry, idolatry, and adultery. And so it is that they face doom and extinction at their own hands. Esther had no other choice but to act. She is like Jacob who had to concede Benjamin to the hands of Judah returning to Egypt. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. 
a resignation and imply trust in the living God to somehow deliver when there seems very little hope. I believe that Esther and Mordecai actually encourage us because they're ordinary people just like us. They're not great superheroes of the faith. Rather, they are people who compromise, people who are weak and frail. And they show us that no matter how far we fall, no matter how many times we sin and fail, we're never disqualified from being useful to God's purposes. If we will humble ourselves, if we will trust him, if we will call out to him, God uses us to bring about deliverance for his people and glory to himself. And Esther is resolved to even perish in her identification with her own people also prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus was sent on a mission to identify with his people who are steeped in sin, ripe for judgment in great peril. And yet Hebrews chapter 2 says that he was not ashamed to call them brothers, but took up their burdens. He intervened where no one else could. The only one able to make the great appeal, to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law, to meet its standards, to pay the penalty for sin, the deathly judgment that each of us deserve. Christ himself was our scapegoat. He is our sacrificial lamb. And we remember on how on the night of his own betrayal and arrest, he made intercession. The Lord Jesus still lives to make intercession on our behalf. Friends, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, one who has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. So may we approach the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us pray. The gracious God, our Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one who identifies with us, who intervenes for us, who continues to intercede on our behalf. We thank you that we are secure and that we have your grace and compassion in this life to carry us through. May we learn to call upon you and may you deliver us as we glorify your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.